it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. Just representation of storm brewing. Amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. I love Four Sigmatic. This is a coffee brand that I can get behind wholeheartedly because not only does it taste great, but this mushroom coffee is absolutely fantastic for you. It's not just a vehicle to consume caffeine. You know, and that's a, a big thing for people. Hey, I can get down with caffeine too, but this is so much more than that. I particularly love the mush- mushroom coffee with lion's mane and chaga. It provides so much more to my body and mind than just coffee. And that's the biggest thing for me. It helps with productivity and focus and creativity throughout my day. And the chaga, also known as the king of mushrooms, also helps with so much of just maintaining your body's functionality and immune system. And I just can't get enough of it. I really can't. I just love the packets specifically as just something to have in the afternoon. Just heat up water wherever I happen to be, throw the packet in there, stir it up, and I'm good to go. And while I may not drink coffee black, I always drink Four Sigmatic Black. It just tastes so good on its own. And I have no doubt that if you give it a try, you'll completely agree. So go to Four Sigmatic. You want to spell out four. So that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Rambling Runner. Or you could just use code Rambling Runner at checkout to save 15% on your order today. This episode is with Olivia Baker. Couldn't wait to talk to Olivia. Olivia was going to be one of the people who is going to be on Road to the Olympic Trials Season 2, which didn't end up happening, as you know, because the Olympic Trials, just like the Olympics, were postponed by a year. I couldn't wait to talk to her all spring and summer, and we finally got around to doing it for the Rambling Runner podcast. And I couldn't wait to talk to her because she is in a unique position, because not while she is one of the best track athletes America has to offer, specifically in the 400 and 800-meter dash, she is... Uh, eight meter dash. So what am I talking about? 800, 400 and 800 meters. Uh, I don't need the dash in there. This isn't, you know, elementary school, but, um, I'm so excited to talk to her because she has, she provides so much insight, not only into what it takes to be a professional, but we talk about some, some of the things that professional and amateur runners have in common, like getting over hurdles. Like, what do you do when, a race gets so tough and you're trying to figure out a way to keep going and not to relent or submit to that uh, that discomfort. Also, she's Stanford educated. She has dreams of being a, neuro, a neuroscientist. This woman is absolutely incredible. And she's in a situation now with COVID postponing everything that she has to look at what her life will look like in terms of going to medical school, when, if, how, all of those things. And I know that all of us can relate to the ideas of We are somewhere in our current profession. We have ideas of what to do in the future, but we don't know when, how, or if to make that happen. And Olivia and I get into that and so much more. So here is my conversation with Olivia Baker. Hello, Olivia, and welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's my pleasure. Well, I'll tell you what. I expected to have a lot of conversations with you this spring and summer, it, that it did not end up being the case. You know, that was one of the things where, you know, season two of Road to the Olympic Trials, you had said yes to be a guest on that. It certainly didn't come to fruition. I'm glad I could finally have you on some sort of show because you're such a fascinating person. But, you know, I expected to have like seven conversations with you by this point in 2020. 
Yeah, me too. I was I was really looking forward to the whole podcast series and yeah, COVID really ruined our plans. <laughs> That's for sure. Who knows? Maybe we like look on the brighter side of life, right? Maybe who knows? You'll like, you know, continue to kick button training and then you'll be, you know, even more ready to roll for the next year's trials and, you know, then who knows? Maybe you look back 5 years later you're like, "Hey, if that hadn't got suspended, then maybe I couldn't have done XYZ." Uh, who knows what the future holds? <laughs> I'm ready for anything at this point. That's for sure. Well, let's talk about the present because you just had a race. You just had an event uh, about a week ago. So can you just tell us exactly what it was, where it was, and how it came about? Because I know with a lot of the meets that are happening now, they're not, you know, they're obviously not super, I wouldn't say super public, but they're not as well known as a t- as a typical meet would be in a normal a normal year. So just how did the event come off and what was kind of your relationship to to the event itself? Right. So my coach organized it. Um coach D2 Daryl Woodson, but he goes by D2 in track circles. Um he put together these events called the Back to the Track series down at Prairie View AM University, uh, about 40 minutes outside of Houston. And yeah, he just once we once Texas started lifting the COVID nineteen restrictions, we were able to secure a location. USATF gave out protocols that we would have to follow in order to um, be able to have a USATF sanctioned meet, which we are doing between the masks, the social dif- distancing, the temperature checks uh, upon entry, and the surveys. We are taking all of those precautions in addition to running in every other lane to remain socially distanced during the race. And yeah, just last week we had a few races, mostly off events, uh, 150, 300, 500. And uh, I think they did a 60 as well. And it was certainly interesting. I mean, especially (laughs) as (laughs) more of an 800 specialist, uh, we weren't, a- or I won't say we weren't able to run an 800. We could run an 800, but it would just have to be a four-turn stagger and only in lanes or for for the first meet, it would have had to been. We're now working on getting COVID tests for everyone so that we can, we don't have to do that four-turn stagger, which sounds awful <laughs> to me. Um, but yeah, so I ran a 500. It felt good to be back on the track. It was quiet. There were no spectators. Um, but all things considered, I feel like I had a pretty good run. I There were two of us in the race, and I, I won the race and ran 110.23, I think it was. And, you know, it just felt good to be back out there again and, and competing. It's been so long. I haven't run a race since USA's in February, so... I, I was just happy to be back out there feeling pretty fit and, and getting back into the swing of things for what will likely be a short outdoor season. So the, the four turn stagger, I feel like if you were in lane eight and a four turn stagger, it would almost be like you got like only had to run like, like basically like one and a half laps. You'd be so far out from everybody else. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, uh, even if I was in lane five and my competitor was in lane eight, I can't imagine mentally what that would be like competing against someone who's starting 
who visually is starting that far ahead of you. Uh, I imagine that it would just feel like a, a regular time trial at that point. Well, which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the person who's like, you know, would feel like 70 meters back or the person who's 70 meters ahead, who's so far ahead that they could actually like see you or like when they're finishing their turn, like, the, you know, that, that, you know, that, that first turn on the backstretch, you know, and be like, wow, like, am I doing well here? Or am I supposed to be like a whole turn ahead of this person? Right. Um, well, both definitely have their challenges because if you're on the inside, you have a better idea of when you're hitting each 200. Uh, but at least on the outside, you may be way ahead, but you don't have to worry about the mentally difficult task of seeing someone that far out ahead of you and wanting to make up the ground right away. So I, I think I would have to go with the lane eight there. <laughs> There you go. All right. So you ran, you know, one ten, you know, and one ten and change, which is what roughly fifty four second quarter pace. Yeah, a little slower. Like I think my coach clocked me at fifty five five through the quarter. Okay. So how did how does that again? Obviously, a five hundred meter race is atypical to say the least. With that said, how did you feel about the race and your fitness and all that? Um, I felt good. Yeah, I, it was hard to gauge where exactly my fitness would be, was would be um, after the last few months. Uh, we've only been back on the track now for about, let's see, today is July 28th. So we've been back on the track only for about five weeks now. So it was really hard to get an idea of where my fitness would be, especially from a speed perspective. Because once we lost the track and the gym, for that matter, at the same time in uh, mid-March, the really the only thing that we could resort to was, was building base again. So I didn't have a good idea of where my speed was going to be when I, I stepped out to race again. So it felt good to get out there to be able to go through 400 pretty well in 55 and and finish strong. I I feel like my my speed is in a good place. Uh now it's time to up the distance a little bit and see where that strength is. So what was your training looking like in the previous I guess the 2 months before you got back on the track 5 weeks ago? Yeah, it was a lot of a lot of distance um my weeks were mostly, I had tempos two days a week on the grass, uh, workouts two days a week on this. We have this cricket field. Coach uses it in the fall. Um, but it is a, it's a an kind of almost circular cricket field on this slanted grass hill. And every time you go around it, you have to go down and then up again. And it's it's just under 400 meters. Coach won't tell us the exact distance, but I imagine that it's somewhere between 390 and 400. And that's what we use to get to do most of our workouts in the fall. Uh, so during the week, I was having two workouts on the on that grass loop, uh, two tempos on grass soccer fields, and then the rest of it was just runs, maybe two or three times a week, I would have a, a long run. And yeah, just, just building up the base. It was more miles than I have ever run <laughs> before. 
So I'm, I'm excited about cashing in on that. I, I want to really see where I am. All right. Two questions for you. All right. So what, what kind of mileage were you putting in? And when an 800 meter runner says they're doing a tempo run, what exactly does that look like? <laughs> okay. So the mileage that I was putting in uh, was not very much. We're talking like 15 miles a week uh, pre-COVID era. Once COVID hit and we were on the grass and kind of running, I think that up to 20 to 30, probably 30 was the, the most I got to in a single week. But yeah, usually in the 20 to 30 range. Um, and when I say tempo, uh, that's either, when I mean when I say tempo workout, I mean something in the range of maybe like five by 800 or five by 1K. Um, or I even got to a point where I could do a few repeat miles. Uh, and when I say tempo run, I mean no more than three miles, but uh, usually around six minute pace for a, a three mile tempo, six minutes or better is the goal. Now, this is so interesting to me. So I had Rebecca Mara on the show a couple months ago, and she's a miler. And she was talking about how her coach is Lauren Fleshman. And they take, uh, again, you guys don't have the same event. So I'm not, this is not an apples to apples comparison, but it's so interesting to see how different people approach events that aren't completely dissimilar because they're, she was putting in 70 ish, 70 to 80 mile weeks with like one really hard session. I think during, during a certain building phase, but even when she was getting ready for competition, she might go to the track like two times a week, but was doing a ton of aerobic work which is really interesting. I know for the mile, I think it's like 87% aerobic, 13% anaerobic. I remember seeing that stat somewhere. And it's so interesting to see how your training is very, you know, is very different. Is that the, the stats you just gave me, is that typical for you? Or is that just kind of like how COVID turned it out to be? Uh, the 15 to 20 miles a week is, is actually pretty typical for me. And uh, but before I go on to that, I got to give some props to Rebecca Mera. I know you said she's more of a miler, but let's not forget that she was she was in the eight hundred uh, final at USA's last year. Um, and she just kicked butt in the one k. She did you see the one k she did like three weeks ago? Yeah, absolutely. She's got some speed on her. Let's let's not discount that. <laughs> right. I mean, all the more reason then to compare and contrast the styles because obviously you got a lot of speed on you too, and it's so interesting how your trainings. Your training systems are so different. Yeah. Yeah, no, very different. Um, I don't know what I would run in a mile right now, but I'm sure Rebecca Merritt would have me by by quite a bit <laughs> at this point in time. All right. So let's let's talk about your how you're training and how that works for you, especially in light of what we just mentioned. So when you talk about how, you know, doing far less mileage than say maybe a miler would do potentially, right? Not every miler is the same or anything like that. What about your training aligns itself with your particular, you know, your talents or what you bring to the table as a runner or just even how you've trained over time? Maybe maybe this is just a way of balancing out what you've done in the past, but how does this particular method work best for you? Well, I think my strength in the 800 really comes from my speed, especially having a 400 background, being primarily a 400 runner uh, until my sophomore year of college, uh, having that 
speed has been something that I've, that has really been an asset to me. And I found that in the times that I did go up in mileage um, a little bit too much or have a long run that was just a little bit too far, it caused me to get injured or I would have hiccups in my training. So we found that a system that has a lot of mileage really wasn't one that was working for me uh, in the past. Not that I, not that I can't do more miles, but one that would, would really be high mileage would be, uh, could run the risk of me getting injured more. So there's that. And then also I think that just, you know, I, I hope one day to to maintain enough speed or, or gain enough speed to earn a spot on that four by four on a world team, or maybe who knows, maybe even the Olympic team. I'm not afraid to put that out there, but yeah, I, that would that would be a really cool thing to do, I think, and I I, I would love to do it. And is training for the 800 and 400 simultaneously an optimal double or is the training a little bit different for both of those and maybe not something that you can necessarily do and peak for simultaneously? Ooh, <laughs> that's a question more for my coach. But if I had to answer it, I think that I think that you can train for both. I think that more of the uh, peaking issue at least for me, has been mental. Like something that I found to be difficult, especially being in the professional running arena where I don't get to run as many races in a season as I did in, say, high school and college. It is mentally harder to switch back and forth between the paces. Like I even notice it in practice when we're training race modeling for an eight and then I race an eight and then I have a four the next week, say, and coach says, okay, we need to, or maybe not the next week, maybe two weeks later. And coach says, okay, now we need to race model for the four. I need you to snap back into the 400 mindset. Uh, I've noticed that going back and forth has been on my body has been very, has been the biggest challenge of pursuing both events is really understanding and being able to to hold both paces in my muscle memory at the same time, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And when you talk about the mindset shift, how would you categorize the mindset for each event? Well, as a, as more of a strength-based 400 runner and a speed-based 800 runner, I think that the mindset going into a 400 is always more, I know my strength is in the finish. So I, I go in telling myself I need to hit my paces. For me, that's around 24 seconds, uh, 24 flat at 200, and then finish strong uh, in a 400. In the 800, I have to shift and tell myself, okay, my strength is my speed, so I really need to get out now in an eight. You know, I need to be at least... 58 seconds through 400, or I run the risk of really getting, getting caught, getting eaten up on the back end. So I think that the, the shift really for me comes in the first 200, going from 24 second pace through 200 to 28 second pace uh, for the 800 is really where I need to 
be able to do to hit both of those smoothly and um be able to shift back and forth uh cleanly and both of those races can be just be i mean shoot every race can be brutal i shouldn't say yeah but basically unless it's like a 100 meter race like basically besides that every race can be brutal in its own in its own way um in regards to the 400 and 800, where does it really set in for you where you mentally have to say, okay, this is the spot where I need to make sure that I'm not giving in. I'm not giving into my body or mind uh, and I can you know, push through this and potentially even speed up if I'm really kind of stick to my guns. Where, where usually do you find those spots in each of those races? It's definitely a little bit over halfway for both of them. <laughs> Honestly, in the 800, it is right with 300 to go. Uh, in the 400, it's right around 150 to go is when I really start to feel myself tying up. And yes, it, it's exactly like what you said. I have to mentally tell myself to stay in it, to to keep pushing because there definitely is a moment of doubt like, oh no, did I go out too fast? I'm tying up. I'm tired. Am I going to make it? And then I have to like you said, steal my resolve and say, yes, you are going to make it. You are going to do this. Yeah, finish strong, dial in, focus. And you've done these races so many times. Does it still feel the same now as it did five to eight years ago when, again, making the apples to apples, apples to apples comparison of you're going as hard as you can, right? You're not holding anything back. You're trying to completely max out your fitness does it still feel the same way now as it did back then? It does. Yes. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe I just haven't figured it out yet, but I don't know how people just walk off the track like they're not tired after races. I mean, I've noticed in, in a lot of great runners in four, eight mile and, and, and up that they, they cross the finish line and everyone's breathing heavily and tired of course but a lot of a lot of top athletes are able to just walk off the track without bending over as though it's it's not that hard <laughs> and i admire that in them that they're able to make it look easy i on the other hand have not figured that out yet i think in in a lot of my finishes in races you've probably you can probably see that on video that i am just as tired as I've always been in high school and have not quite figured out how to play it off yet. <laughs> well, I can relate to that. I don't think I have ever had a good looking finishing photo in any race at any distance. Um, so I can, I can relate to that feeling for sure. I'm, I'm the kind of everyone, everyone looks different when they finish or when they get extremely fatigued. I'm like, I'm a Pez dispenser. I'm one of those like head goes all the way back type, oh, type no. fatigue runners. <laughs> Yeah, it, does, it never looks good. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. So, so many of our listeners are dedicated amateur runners, right? They're not a professional. They didn't run, they didn't do elite college track and, and things of that nature. However, one thing that binds runners of all abilities is getting through that pain point or that, you know, as, as I often say on this podcast, is like that last 3%. Right. And oftentimes you only that, you know, you yourself is the only one that knows how you reacted when your body got to that last three percent and whether you gave in even just a little bit. 
or you're able to push through and no matter what your time is, say, hey, man, like I just I put in everything there. Like I gave it all I had and there's no regrets again, no matter what the time is or what the finishing place is. When you have had those experiences and you've really reached to every little bit that you have in you, what was the differentiator? What about that performance allowed you to get through that point as opposed to maybe some other races? And you can give an example if you like, where maybe, again, maybe you're the only one that knew it, but you know that you just didn't quite tap into everything you had. Yeah. I would say that the key there is. Don't hesitate, is what I would say. I think we we talked about a moment ago how the when you get to that point, there's almost a decision that needs to be made to keep pushing and to keep going and to refocus. And I think for me, my best races have been when I don't even have to make that decision. When I get to 300 meters to go and the 800. And it's a close race and it's a fast race and everyone is there and everyone is grinding. And instead of thinking about how am I going to push myself through, I'm just thinking about keeping up with the person next to me, not letting them get away. And I find that when I'm in those competitive situations uh, where I don't have to make that decision is, is really when I'm at my best. And that's something that I've worked on in training too is the the whole don't hesitate when I'm by myself. Because uh, in those hard practices, we get to a point where there are definitely points in the hard practices where, especially on the watch, coach will say five minutes rest and I'll see him maybe talking to one of my training partners and I'll be watching my watch and I'm like, oh, four and a half minutes have already passed. You know, I really could use an extra 30 seconds here. But but no, sometimes you just have to, you have to say, Hey coach, you know, time's up. I gotta, I gotta get on this. I gotta stay in this workout. I can't afford to, to hesitate to take an extra couple, an extra 30 seconds in this workout because I won't be able, I won't be able to have the time to make that decision in a race. I want it to just be there naturally. And, um, there've definitely been some races in my career where I have where I've hesitated, where I've had to make that decision, even if only for a split second where I, I lost focus or the pain came in and I grimaced and thought, ah, oh, I'm not going to make it, where I had to dial back in. And I want to get to a point in training where that doesn't happen, whether there's competition right on me or not, whether the whether I'm at the US final or at the the Prairie View Invitational where I'm where I'm only racing against one other person. I, I want to be able to to not hesitate in my races. And I think that's the key to really pushing through when you reach that that turning point moment. In those races, the four hundred and eight hundred, you know, you're redlining for a significant portion or percentage of that race. And that's something that a lot of runners who say who listen to this, they may be marathoners and they don't get they don't really experience that. Right. Their fatigue uh, is kind of a different sort. However, there's a large, you know, large portion of people who listen to these that are 5K runners. And while they might not be on the edge for 60 percent of their race necessarily, but they might be there for a considerable period of time in a 5K 
And what has been your experience about managing, not managing, I guess, is learning to understand what that edge feels like and how much more, um, I guess, what, how much more potential you have in that space than maybe you, than maybe you realize when you're younger or less experienced or just not used to running in significant discomfort. Oof. <laughs> it's, it's tough. I got to say, I, I empathize with the 5k runners. I mean, I'm not a 5k runner myself, but I do actually run one uh, once a year, I actually open up, I guess I wouldn't call it opening up my season, but usually about a month or so into fall training, like at the end of September, my town, South Orange hosts a 5k. It's called the Newstead 5k. I've been running it almost, almost every year since I was eight. I think, what was I doing last year during Oh, the season was super long last year, so I didn't run it. My last actual race, uh, the USA versus the match, USA versus Europe, was September. I want to say it was September eighth or ninth last year, and so I was actually still in my off period when and this is South Orange, New Jersey. Yes, this is South Orange, New Jersey, uh, and I was still in my off period when the Newstead five K came up. So I didn't. I didn't run it last year, but most years since I most, almost every year since I was eight, I ran the Newstead 5k. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure out myself how to handle that. I, I nicknamed the race prolonged pain because it's exactly like <laughs> what you said. <laughs> it's like a mile in, I am feeling it. And I, instead of having 300 meters to go, I have 2.1 more miles to get through and it just hurts. <laughs> but I think I, I would say that in a, in a 5k and especially a town 5k like that, it's fun to, to really, to latch on to someone. And I know in, in races, you can find yourself kind of, and especially in a 5k wavering a bit. I know I definitely do after that first mile wondering, oh man, did I get out too fast? Uh, but the moment that someone who didn't run the first mile as fast as I did passes me, uh, I'm, I'm really able to latch on to that and, and keep going. And granted, I don't know if I'm the best person to be giving 5k advice, but that is how I handle the prolonged pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's something that you have to deal with so often just with, you know, again, the 800 and the 400. Um, I'm not going to compare myself to you. So let me just make that abundantly clear. I'm not comparing myself to you. You're an elite level runner. But I remember, you know, the 400 was my race in high school. And again, for for my talent level, I was running like hopefully like, you know, as, as so many other people do as hard as I could possibly run. And I just remember that feeling of just, hey, you're just you're on the edge and you're and for me, it was never quite knowing how much gas you ever had in the tank until you I guess you pushed it too far. And you, oftentimes you hear people, you know, no matter no matter their distance that they pursue, whether it's again the 400 meters runners to ultra marathoners, right, who have you know time and time again come back from the brink and continue racing and they can go to the brink and continue racing. And just that experience of how much can you give? How much do you left do you have in the tank? 
And that's just something that I feel like for amateur runners, we're constantly trying to figure that out for ourselves, but maybe, you know, not getting as quite, not getting as, as close to that line as maybe someone like yourself does who you know does this you know if not for a living but does it at the highest level possible and has so much experience doing it yeah it's it's hard <laughs> it's really hard to find that i think i mean i've been running track since i was 8 years old and i think that's something that helped me find that gear it was just getting into some really good competitions, matching up with people who were really evenly matched with me and who would push me all the way to the line. Whenever I would go a little bit faster, they would go a little bit faster. And I think that for for an amateur runner, if you can find a race or find people who are around your, your skill level, then that could really help you and help the other person at that discover just how far you can go. All right. When 2020 began, and I don't know if you're someone who sets out beginning of the year with certain goals and, you know, all the things that have, you know, potentially could come down, come your way in the new year. But let's just go back to that time. If you were going to, you know, pick up a pen and you were going to write down your goals for the year, what were some of the things that you were hoping to do in 2020? Right. The ultimate goal, of course, was to to medal at the Olympics, uh, the plan, and then I guess backing backing up from there, the steps along the way. Of course, in order to get to the Olympics, you have to qualify, place top three at the Olympic trials. And I was actually hoping, with the way that the schedule is structured this year, to run both the four hundred and the eight hundred at the Olympic trials. I was going to run the four hundred, which was the first three days, and then there are three days in between in, in the schedule. And then the 800 takes place over the last four days. And I was, I was hoping to run the four and the eight. I was gonna, I wanted to place top three in the 800, of course, to make the team. And I was also hoping to secure a relay spot in the open 400. And uh, I, I really thought that was within reach, especially with the addition of the mixed four by four to the Olympics. So now they take uh, eight people instead of six from the Olympic trials. I felt like I had a, a pretty decent shot at attempting that goal. Um, but yeah, that was that was the main goal for for 2020. It was to get after that. Uh, and if I make comment on it further, I think that I'd really like to see some more people get after it. I think that there's a lot of talent right now in the 800, in the women's 800 and the men's 800 for that matter. But I think that there are a lot of female 800 runners with the 400 speed to to compete in the open four. And I, I wish more people would be open to at least trying something like that. And when you were thinking about the steps needed to medal at the Olympics and to be um, part of that team in a, you know, in a couple of different capacities, what were some of the benchmarks that you felt you needed to hit to set yourself up for that kind of success? Well, the fence posts are definitely moving since 50.3 and 159.5 or 
made the team in 2016. So I I believe that yeah, the <laughs> the fence posts are moving in the that 159 almost certainly will not make the Olympic team in my opinion in the 800 this or it would not have this year. Uh honestly that we have such a competitive field in the women's 800 right now that I could imagine a scenario where someone runs 159 and doesn't even make it out of the semifinal. Um, just that that's a testament to how deep the field was. So the benchmarks along the way definitely would have had to consistently be able to run 50 point low in the 400. And I would say under 158 in the 800 to make that team. Uh, Certainly lofty goals, but not ones that I was afraid to chase this year. And what were the things that you and your coach felt like you needed to do from a training and strength and, you know, and every other thing that goes into being a high level runner that you need to do to get to those benchmarks? I think that the, or our, the philosophy that coach had uh, approaching this was that I needed to get really strong, like an endurance strong on, on the track and in my workouts. And then I needed to get my speed, get really physically strong in the weight room. And so essentially get the endurance on the track, get the speed part in the weight room. And then as we got closer to competition time, really start getting into more specific work uh, for both the 400 and 800. Uh, I think that was, that was the trajectory that we were, we were working on in March before all of, uh, before all of the lockdowns happened. All right. So post lockdown, say like even right now, what are some of the things that you and your coach are doing um, not only in terms of your day-to-day training, but figuring out when and how to peak? Yes, that is a tricky question. I think we actually haven't really talked about it for next season just yet. Right now, I'm I'm just focused on making it to the end of this season, maybe putting down or at least trying to see where my fitness is after this unusual COVID block of training and going into next year. I, I'm not sure. Actually, we will have to figure that out over the summer. And what were you able to do uh, when, during the lockdown phase in terms of getting yourself to be a stronger runner? You know, obviously you weren't able to, you know, have the kind of, you know, you were able to have the kind of workouts either on the track or off the track that you would ideally like to have during that time. So what were some of the key things that you focused on? Definitely the long runs. I saw a great improvement in my long run. I think I posted on my Instagram about a month ago that before the lockdown, my longest long run was six miles and I could only do it at 730 pace. And by the end of the lockdown, 12 weeks later, I had run 10 miles and I could do it at 712 pace. So I I saw really big improvements in my long run. And I think a part of that also has to do with also seeing improvements in my tempos. Um, 
I had never tempoed past reps of 1Ks going into the quarantine, and I was able to do repeat miles by the end of it. So just kind of slowly working my way up to being able to handle more in my long runs and in my tempos was a major key to to gaining strength over the course of the over the course of the quarantine. I love that. All right, let's go back in time. So when you you were a decorated high school athlete, you a 400 meter runner at the time, when you were thinking about where you wanted to run in college and get a, get an education in college, what brought you to Stanford? It was just the best combination of academics and athletics. I I knew that I wanted to go to a school that was was very academically strong and also one that had a team that I could com- that had goals and aspirations of of competing with the best on the NCAA level. And and Stanford fit the bill 100% I with the from a perspective of ap- academic excellence and then I saw as well excellence on the track. Yeah, I mean they dominate in Olympic sports, you know. Shoot, just about all of them, right? I mean, if you're an Olympic sport athlete, forget just even track. Um, you really can't do worse. Uh, or I should say can't do worse. Can't do better than Stanford in that <laughs> regard. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And when you were thinking about just from the education perspective, you know, what about, you know, what were you hoping to pursue post-college and post-track, even, you know, assuming that at that time that track was going to continue post-college, um, that you wanted to pursue from an academic standpoint to set yourself up for a potential career down the line? I was hoping to, or I came in, I'll say I came into college as a pre-med. I wanted to, and still want to, go to med school, become a doctor. Um, in high school, I was certain that I was going to be a neurosurgeon as I've been exposed to more of the fields of medicine, I still think neurosurgery is cool, but I could see myself being interested in a lot of other topics as well. And I, yeah, I came into Stanford hoping to, to pursue a degree that would, would lead me in that direction. I know during freshman fall and, and my first year, uh, I got to try out a lot of different things from from engineering to math to English. Stanford actually doesn't even let their students do the human biology, which ended up being my eventual major. But they have this thing called the human biology core that you have to take before you can declare yourself as a human biology major. And you're not even allowed to take it until your sophomore year. So I, I remember during freshman year, I, my eyes were open to a lot of the different things that you can you can do <laughs> that I hadn't even considered before. I, I got to learn, like I said, engineering, English, computer science. But eventually I, I did settle back into the pre-med track and, and decide that I do still want to go to medical school and, and become a doctor in my future. So when you graduated from college and you had to make the decision of, okay, what to do next? What do I want to pursue? I got all of these options, both athletic and you know, within the medical space. You're coming from Stanford, you know, and you're a, certainly a very bright person. You had a lot of options. So what was the decision-making process then in terms of what you wanted to pursue 
right out of college? And what is the decision-making process now, considering that everything is so in flux, the state of track and field is kind of like a who knows situation, and everything got postponed by at least a year? Right. I, whew. well, coming out of college, I just, I realized that I still loved running and I felt like I, I, and I feel not just felt, I feel like I still have a lot in the tank. And one of the, one of my main goals with running and one of my dreams has always been to, to medal at the Olympics. And considering that I didn't make the team in, in 2016 and I graduated in 2018 with 2020, just two years away, it, it made a lot of sense to at least pursue running for two more years through the Olympics. And so at the graduating college, I decided that I was going to commit to running for two more years. And then in 2020, I would really make a decision on whether or not I was going to continue running or go into med school. So in, in 2018, I took my MCATs they those test scores are good for three to five years depending on the in depending on the schools I choose to apply to. And you don't want to take those again, that's for sure. I do not. <laughs> I I'd be willing, but I do not want to. But that time limit means that I have to or I'll say I have to matriculate within three years of taking those those tests or in some oh, cases so I you can can't defer. even defer your acceptance. Well, I can, I can, I can defer. Okay. But I have to, I have to at least apply. So for a lot of schools, I have to apply this year or my MCAT scores will expire and I won't be able to apply to those schools next year. And I was hoping that sitting here in July of 2020, the Olympic trials would have been in June and I would have been sitting in July either as an Olympian getting ready or at this point today, I, <laughs> I would have been at the Olympics prayerfully in Tokyo because they would have had the opening ceremonies just a few days ago. And I imagine myself, but in general, sitting in July, knowing whether I, or not I had become an Olympian and being prepared to make a decision on medical school. Unfortunately, I am sitting in July and I don't know whether or not I'm going to be an Olympian and I still need to make that decision on medical school. And the decision I've made right now is to go ahead and submit my application and kind of see what my options are, see what my acceptances look like in at the end of the year, December, January when they start uh, offering acceptances and, and really evaluate. I don't see myself, if I do get accepted to somewhere, I would definitely have to defer because most med schools start classes in July. And not this plans year. On, right. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely would have to ideally, uh, or at the earliest I would enter in 2022 after the world championships in Eugene, but we will see. I mean, I decided to go ahead and apply and just keep my options open. I mean, no guarantees that I'll even decide to go into med school in 2022, but, but yeah, I, I am 
really just in a kind of wait and see point where I'm laying out all of my options on the table to, to evaluate towards the end of the year. And what's it like for you as an unsponsored athlete, but someone who at the same time views running in the Olympics as a realistic goal and seeing athletes that you compete against being sponsored? Like, what, what's that process like for you in terms of not only um, making it a financially viable decision to run at this level, but also just the behind the scenes stuff in terms of like who gets sponsorship, who doesn't, and what kind of back and forth goes with, with attaining something like a deal that you would want with a company that you would want to work with. It's, um, it is interesting. I, you know, at the moment I, I leave most of that to my agent. Uh, I just try to get out there every day and, and control the factors that I can control, get out there and, and run fast times, let the companies know that, that I'm a world contender and, and that I'm, you know, world, world team can, an international contender rather. Um, and that I can, I really can do some, some pretty incredible things. I have big goals, but they're not out of reach. And yeah, I, I, I just leave it to, to my agent to look at, to look out for me and, and take the, you know, forward me the opportunities as they come. But, but yeah, I mean, I have no ill will towards those who are, who are getting sponsored right now. I'm, I'm happy for a lot of the 800 runners who are getting sponsored. And, uh, I do hope to be one of them soon, but we'll see. All right. Last question before we get going. First of all, thank you so much for coming on, having this this you know your this frank conversation about so many things, and it's just so much fun to talk to you. When you are going through moments like this, where obviously this you can't really compare this to, to previous moments in terms of athletic life, but <laughs> um, you know, just right now or at any point in your life, and you know, for, for even going back to Stanford and you know being a student athlete in college, you know, certainly has its ups and downs. What are some of the things that you do or people that you look at or what have you that get you motivated and inspired to be your best athletic self? Well, I think one of the first people I, I look at actually is Jill Miles Clark. I, I look at what she did back in the in the 90s. Um, you know, she's one of the only ones in the world to in the same year go sub 50 sub 157 in the four and the eight and i mean i think i said it before i feel like there are a lot of 800 runners who have the talent to do that if they should so pursue it but i she's really a huge inspiration for me uh it's always inspiring watching her run I think she approached it. She would always say in her interviews, at least earlier on, uh, before she transitioned to more primarily an 800 runner, uh, that she was a 400 runner who just ran the 800 for strength. And I found that pretty funny <laughs> when she was running 158s and 157s just for strength for her 400. But she's definitely um, someone that I've I've looked to I've watched videos and clips and, and observed in the 
over the past year to uh, that has helped me stay motivated and, and keep pursuing this goal. Right. Okay. Oh, I said, I said last question and now I'm kicking myself. So I had another question all lined up. And so no, that was the second to last question. Here's the last question. Okay. I'm so sorry, Olivia. All right. So it's okay. the last question. I wanted to bring this up because especially over the last couple of months, we've seen, and I even talked to Jordan Mann about this when um, Brown University was going through some of its upheaval when their athletics and within their athletic department, we're seeing a lot of Olympic sports being cut from division one schools uh, and schools at, any, at every level, uh, even very high level schools. And you're seeing this, you know, even within track, um, you know, men's and women's track teams being cut. And when you see this happening what has been your reaction to that it makes me sad i mean my own alma mater stanford just cut 11 sports and i'm really disappointed about that i actually sent them a very disappointed a well-written and very irritated email the other day uh, expressing my disappointment that they were eliminating these sports despite being a school with such a large endowment. And it just, it hurts. I'm thankful that Brown reinstated their men's and women's track team. And that there was, uh, I think, Russell Dinkins, correct me if I'm wrong, please, yes. led the... Yeah, led the which the, and, he, and he was uh, a Princeton grad, which was even you know even more fantastic for him. Yeah, yeah. Brown they cut the men's track team, but not the women's. But I think that basically they were gonna. The whole thing was so wild because then it was like, what do you do with the coaching staff and and the, the travel and all of this stuff? It was such a it was such a murky thing that that would end up happening, and then they basically reversed course two weeks later. Right. Yeah, and I was. I'm happy that there was enough that the track world came to support him in that movement and that we were able to have that such an influence in two weeks. Um, that type of thing really gives me hope. It's, it's good to see the, um, see a community come together to be able to push for something uh, so monumental and make it happen. Uh, it gives me hope actually for the, for the world at large, as I think about, the protests that are going on, uh, all the things that are going on with, with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Ahmaud Arbery, seeing in some ways, seeing the ways that communities come together to, to enact change gives me hope for our community at large, not just the track and field community, but the American community. Uh, I believe that we can come together to fight racism and it it is, I guess all I'm trying to say is that I, even though this has weighed really heavily on my heart, I have been inspired by the response that I've seen from so many and, and the way that we've come together. And I really hope that we can keep that momentum going. But, but anyway, yeah, I, the the seeing so many colleges getting rid of sports programs disappoints me a lot and i hope that our community can come together to to stop that from happening i mean did you feel like sports helped amplify your college experience i mean it's it's hard cuz part of the reason you went to stanford was to participate in sports right so you know there's there's that element but you you also 
were an extremely serious student at an extremely serious school. So do you feel like having the athletic piece was something that helped your college experience? And I say that in light of, like, if you look at the European model of athletics, college sports is not part of it, right? There are no college sports. It's completely club-based. Like, but do you feel, and I say this as a former college athlete myself, so I obviously am very biased on this topic, but do you feel like it helped you with, it helped within your college experience uh, being a student athlete as opposed to just a student? Yes, I do. I mean, coming into college, one of the scariest things freshman year is, is meeting a bunch of new people and wondering, am I going to have friends? But coming in, as a part of the track team, I had 90 plus teammates who I'm working together with every day, who we're having team bonding events with, and and who kind of gave me a safety net in a sense of, well, if I don't make any friends in my freshman dorm, at least I have my team. So I would say yes, absolutely. Uh, those friendships and many of those friendships that I made on the track team, I still have. I still keep in touch with with uh, uh, a lot of my friends from from the team these days. So, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. And I've spent my life in Division three athletics before going full time with this podcast, and that was one of the things that you saw all the time in Division three was that. Schools were trying to add sports because it helped with admissions in terms of getting people to you know look at the school and then also with retention, retaining students. If they participated in intercollegiate in, in intercollegiate athletics, they were more likely to stay at the school. So for them, it viewed, they viewed it as a um, not instead of a revenue expense, it was a revenue amplifier because it would increase the amount of students who would potentially come to the school and also increase the amount of students that would stay at the institution. Right. I mean, there you go. For sure. I think uh, a larger or institutions with larger endowments like Stanford probably aren't too worried about that. But no, no, no. no. The supply <laughs> and demand is in their favor. That's for sure. Especially from yes. a student's perspective. Right. So uh, it's a little tougher in that case. But I agree in general. Um, you're right. It, sports are a way that that draws that draw a lot of students to campus and, and help keep them there. Not to mention bringing in a good amount of money in the in the case of of a lot of the major sports. Absolutely, Olivia. We could talk about this all day. This is like for me, like shoot, talk about college sports. <laughs> That's I honestly I could stop talking like you know. On Sunday, we could just keep talking all the way through the week. I'm not <laughs> going to do that to you. Lord knows, no one needs to talk to me that for that long time. So, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. I'm glad we finally got to do this, and it has been my pleasure as well. This was a fun conversation. Olivia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry about that. One last question. I think I dropped four one last questions on there, but can you blame me? I mean, Olivia is so much fun to talk to. Uh, so with that being said, on Monday, I'm going to be launching a brand new journey that I cannot wait to bring to you. So the best way to get the advance notice of what's going to be coming your way, something that Everyone who listens to this podcast is going to be able to relate to something that I am so excited to bring your way. If you want to get insider access to exactly what I'll be dropping, 
And I think that you will, because I've test driven the idea with over 40 listeners on different phone conversations I've had. I've reached out to a lot of people who listen to this show, and it was unanimous. They couldn't wait to hear more about this project. That's why I started it, and now it's coming. It's coming out Monday. If you want to learn more, go to theramblingrunner.com forward slash newsletter. Sign up, and you will hear about it this weekend before the announcement on Monday. I cannot wait to bring it to you. Let me just say that. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.